good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is the Curious Anarchy Podcast, and I'm here today with Susanna. How are you, Susanna? I'm good, thank you. And yourself? I'm really good, thank you. Really good. Um, we will be joined by Mark shortly, I hope. Um, okay, yes, I was just speaking with him. Um, so yeah, he should be joining us very shortly. But today, we are going to be talking about living in a former democracy. Um, yeah. So, Susanna, if you could kind of just sort of briefly give the listeners a bit of a background of yourself. A background to me? Um, Okay. (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Barbara. I came in at the right time. You did. (laughs) For the past few years, I've worked um, both inside and outside of a political party and my roles have included but not exclusively been um being a parliamentary assessor writing policy training within that organization and working within the parliamentary estate um and running well literally running britain's oldest feminist organization and for my troubles i've been made to stand for election both as a um, MEP candidate when we still had access to the EU and also as a Westminster candidate and more locally as a council candidate and additionally I've run about 26 to 28 different campaigns at all levels to get other people elected. So that's a bit of my background. Wow. Awesome. And what about your college? Um, your college uh, direction that you're taking? Well, I opted to go back into university sort of as a mature student. As I mentioned, I've written policy, but it's one of those areas where um, when you're researching policy, you actually get somebody else to sign it off and they put their name to it, which I thought was a little unfair. I wanted to <laughs> rightly or wrongly be able to claim um, kind of full credit for some of the stuff I was writing. Um, well, and you, we do you can do that on here, it. Susanna. You know, people listening to this can acknowledge that you actually wrote it, and maybe that's because they'll understand that from the discussion hopefully we have today. Well, the thing is, I suppose that where we do live in a marginally capitalist society, you see, the person that signs things off tend to, tends to get paid that little bit more. So I went back into university to get some letters after my name okay. so that I can be the person that signs it off rather than having somebody else sign things off. But in no, doing so, yeah, yeah, I a dual MA, so study in post-coloniality and modern British politics. Wow. And they're more linked than I guess a lot of people think. Oh, they never interesting. Separated. My interest within politics is actually um, racialized politics. So politics of race. So it's mm-hmm. kind of an intersection with 
how we write policy to organise our social world. Mm. Um, so to kind of tee this up then, Mark. So it's interesting listening to what you just said there. I was fascinated what you said there because I was trying to work out if you could have elements of democracy if you don't have uh, proper policies around uh, equal opportunities, uh, access for everybody, um, you know, non non uh, institutionalized racism. I wonder if you could have democracy at all if you if you don't have those things. Because the discussion we wanted to have today was about do we live in a democracy in the United Kingdom? Mm, I think you know my views on this. I it's called teeing you up. I I believe that we do not live in a democracy at all. Oh, why? Um, why did you say that? We have the illusion of a democracy, but way back in the 1970s, Lord Hailsham gave a speech um, for the Dimbleby Lectures about um, do we live in a um, democratic, in an elected dictatorship? Sorry, Susanna, an elected dictatorship, what would that actually mean? Well, the premise to that was that government controlled parliament so that parliament was really just there to do the bidding of government. Okay. Now at the time, our parliament, when we look at it, is not just the House of Commons. It's the House of Commons, the House of Lords, and it's the Supreme Court in effect. So you've got the three parts and actually the monarchy, but that's they, when a new parliament is elected, they gift, if you like, their, um, their role the very short version is they gift their power to the incoming prime minister for matters of the general running of the country now if you go back in time so you'd pass people would think of new laws being passed as new acts of legislation you see we don't have a constitution like the US not in the same form as the US so we don't have a single piece of paper that you can go to that says these are the rules of the UK. Okay. We don't have a codified constitution in that way. In fact, we have, if you like, the largest uncodified constitution. It's constantly evolving. So what do we have in this place? Uh, literally, we have the the British Library. We the have British all Library. of the we have all of the Acts of Parliament for the last three hundred odd years. Wow. And every time a new act is passed, every time a new piece of legislation is passed, it act, it adds to our uncodified constitution. So, so can I ask you a quick question about that, Susanna? Because yeah. I'm just a bit a little bit confused. A because of what you just said, but also we also have a monarchy, don't we? We do, yes. And they also have um a, a, a hold over laws in this country. They're not meant to. As okay. They're not meant to tinker with Parliament. Mm. I didn't mean, sorry, I didn't mean that. What I meant was, I remember during the miners' strike, people were being charged with travelling on the Queen's Highway without her permission. Yeah. So if that wasn't a, a regal law, they couldn't be charged with that. That comes down more to what the highways are defined as. So they could have been charged with traversing a state highway or you know trespassing on 
private land. But all of that would fit into most countries. All of that would fit into most countries. I'm saying on top of that, we have the, the, the monarchy holds certain laws from time that have evolved away. You know, they haven't dis- they haven't dissolved. Sorry, they haven't dissolved at all. So no, they haven't they, dissolved. But how do they fit into what you're talking about? Is what I'm asking. Every time we elect a new prime minister. Yeah. The Prime Minister effectively goes to the monarch at the time, asks for permission to form a government, and the monarch of the time effectively gives power to running of the country to the incoming Prime Minister. So there's this power shift right. where one gives the other the right to run the country, which is why it's the monarch that recalls Parliament, in effect. They have an official little state opening, and you'll occasionally see the monarch there. But ever since we had like the Civil War, so Charles II and all of that lot you're looking yeah. at, the yeah. monarch has yeah. been vastly stripped of power. So it's more of a ceremonial role now that the monarch yeah. has. They do still have a role, but it is far more of a ceremonial role than anything else. Okay, so we are not subjects then of the Crown? We are and we aren't. It's a really okay. one. They don't hold that much power. It is a little bit of power. Like technically the queen is still, or the monarch of the day, because won't always be a queen, um, is still head of the armed forces, head of the religion. And- But you're saying it's a powerless head. It's just a, it's just a figurehead. It's not a real power. It's a bizarre one because She's only head of the religion of the country, but if the majority of the country are non-religious or adhere to a different religion, yeah. they're not her. They're not there. The figurehead of the monarch is not that person's figurehead. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Although she's head of the armed forces, she doesn't literally can. The generals are not all going to her and having a little chat with Her Majesty. Okay. Yeah. Into the yeah. government. Sorry, I didn't mean to waylay you from what you were saying. I just wanted to be clear on that. So every Uh, time there's an election... Yep. Is it up to that individual parliament or or leader to frame their their ideas of law and order? Well, basically, they run on a manifesto. So the real basis is that each party has a manifesto. And these manifestos, they used to be widely available in bookstores up and down the country when I was small. And you actually used to go and buy them. But now they're available online, should you ever wish to read them. And they fulfill, they give an outline to what that party wants to do and the vision that they have for the country. Now, anything that's written in that manifesto, so something that they want to do, like, I don't stupid, like they wish to paint all underpasses bright yellow because <laughs> yeah. it's night time or something. Yeah. If they then get elected, they've been elected on that manifesto because that manifesto is then seen as what the people wanted them to do. Yeah. So anything that's in that manifesto Parliament can't really vote against because it's seen as the will of the people. So it's always a good idea to read these manifestos, however boring they are. And to make a point, the bit about ID cards for voting was hidden in the Conservative Manifesto of 2019. It was in Mm. there. 
Okay. So we can protest as much as we like. We can complain. But well, it, was in, it was in that manifesto. Right, right. Parliament cannot vote it down. Okay. It's seen as the will of the people because the people voted the Conservatives in. The Conservatives had it as something that they were going to do anyway, if voted in. So all they're doing is sticking to what the pledges that they laid out. Wow. Now I just feel like everybody in there is just really complicit. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not going to say anything. But, and here comes some of the... Tr- when I said that we live in an elected dictatorship, so you've got a lot of people think of government as being the whole Houses of Parliament. But government is really just the cabinet. So it's really the Prime Minister and their ministers. Mm-hmm. So it's just a little group within Parliament. Parliament itself, if you like, constrict it to the two main houses. So you've got the House of Commons and the House of Lords. So within the House of Commons, the government, because they sit in the House of Commons, is also effectively the leaders of the House of Commons, which is already an unfair relationship with Parliament. Yeah. The government are the boss of the House of Commons. Now, as I've just mentioned, if something's in a government's manifesto, where you normally have a new piece of legislation goes up to the Lords, the Lords can query it, scrutinise it, hand it back and all of this lot. There's, if it's already in that government's manifesto, the Lords have to pass it. But also, the Lords can only pass things back so many times. Mm. And then you've got the Supreme Court. So the Lords used to control the courts, the Lords being part of the parliamentary estate, and now... Um, the courts are separate so the lords have lost that power as well so when you're looking at are we in an elective democracy parliament no longer really has much power they were meant to be the check and balances to the government but they can no longer fulfill that role because the government dictates the order of the day in fact out of all the sessions that sit if you look up um, there's a small act of parliament for the commons that dictates that the government um, sets the agenda for the day. So it's there in black and white, the government decides what's being discussed in the House of Commons. There's only 57 times a year that all of the other MPs, including the opposition, actually have a say on the things that they want to raise. Wow. House of Commons. Only 57 times a year. That's really small. Yeah. Are they particular days? They are. So usually you've got um, Wednesdays, which is Prime Minister's question time. And even that's been shortened a lot. So that's now quite orchestrated, where it didn't used to be as orchestrated. Yeah. Um, And then you've got Fridays, and then there's opposition days. And if you're the main opposition, you get so many days. And then you're, if you're the minor opposition, you get less days. Until you get down to the Green Party, where you basically have one. Wow. Wow. So when people are complaining <laughs> that the party that they voted for are really not using their power, it's like, well, what power do you think they have? Mm. They're not allowed to just stand up in Parliament and start questioning the government. But then on legislation, you come down to another thing. So you think of a piece of legislation 
as writing a completely new new law. But that requires Parliament to scrutinise it if you do that. And Parliament can hand it back and you hear of the haranguing in the House of Commons, especially when that happens, a new piece of legislation, completely new piece, which the Coronavirus Act was. It's a completely new piece of legislation. But most of the time, to stop Parliament having a say, in effect, they'll use what's called a statutory instrument, which means that you take an existing piece of legislation and you just tweak it. Uh, So you, you just change it a little bit. So, because it, the legislation is already existing, it no longer has to be scrutinised by Parliament because Parliament already scrutinised that piece of legislation when it went through. So, the government can then pass the tweak without a discussion, without it going through Parliament in the normal fashion. That's used about 2,000 times a year. Oh, wow. Wow, that's a lot compared to how many times the opposition has to... to... There's also a website that you can go to that details there are. all of these movements. Yeah. There are, yes. And Parliament produces the stats to show you. So you can actually go to the gov.co.uk website and you can go to the parliamentary websites, look up statutory instruments, and it will show you how much since the 1970s when they were very rarely used. It was Tony Blair that really popularised them, and they say popular ever since as a means of the government pushing through changes. Oh, no, Susanna, my maths isn't good, but there's only 365 days a year, and you're saying yep. they've changed 2,000 times. Yeah, they're just adding the small tweaks, so they're little so, bits. But like, literally about 10 times a day, then? Yeah. Wow. Wow, okay. Okay. Uh, I wasn't ready and, for and that. These, these can range in uh, importance, gravity. Uh, they can be little like bits, like impact. like um, extension to stop and search powers, or things like that. So they so don't have to be discussed because they're so minor no. in theory. In theory, because I can yeah. see how would be minor, but I can see it, the, the thinking is they're minor, but but. You know, like if it was a, a whole bill change, a whole law change, it, it would have to be yeah. discussed. But if it was the introduction, if it was the introduction of stop and search in the first place, that might require a new piece of yeah, legislation. Yeah, yeah. If you're just changing something that's already there, mm. but what happens is over time the changes build up, so you get incremental change upon incremental change, and before you know, the piece of legislation is no longer anything like the original. Yeah. Because of all these little changes that have gone through. So usually the public only hear about when there's a new piece of legislation, not yeah. the little changes. And that's how you see things going through so fast. And you see the opposition trying to say something about it. And it's like, well, you can voice your opinion, but we're doing this anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So, and it really starts with the voting practice. So, I think most people know that we have first past the post. Yeah. We have this illusion that we have universal suffrage, which we've never, ever had to be. Why do you say that, Susanna? Um, Initially, it was only men with land that could vote. 
Right, then yeah, it was yeah. men without land could vote as well. Then it was women included o- over the age of 30. And then it was, okay, we'll let women vote over the age of 18. But then since the 1970s, as the country's become more diverse, we've used statutory instruments as a way of disenfranchising people. So most countries now allow prisoners to vote. Yeah. Almost all countries do, because you see sending somebody to prison as a way of taking away some of their civic responsibilities, but it's not a way of taking somebody completely out of society. It's not meant to be. They're being punished for something they did, but you're not taking away completely their right. And their role in society, yeah. Yeah, they're still a part of... It's not a complete social death. Yeah. So we have roughly, give or take, about 82,000 prisoners in the UK at the moment. Mm -hmm. They don't have the right to vote. Mm. Wow. This has been an ongoing problem. When we were in the EU, um, there was a problem that we're the only EU country that didn't allow prisoners the right to vote. There was a bit of haranguing and we said, okay, you know, we'll allow some prisoners maybe the right to vote. We never really formalised that. Um, It was in all of the tabloids about should we give murderers the right to vote? Not all prisoners have murdered somebody. Mm-hmm. That is a very specific crime. Um, so they don't have the right to vote. It used to be under the Mental Health Act that you couldn't vote, but then um, disability rights came in and it was obviously seen as very wrong to prevent somebody from voting because they had a disability. However, we've managed to get around that by Quite often, when we're detaining somebody under the Mental Health Act, we will detain it under certain sections of the Mental Health Act, often like Section 34 and such like, which you're basically detained by the police under the Mental Health Act, which because people detained by the police are not allowed to write to vote in the UK, hence prisoners, it means that people detained under certain parts of the Mental Health Act are also not allowed to vote. Wow. Because it, they've been detained by the judicial system, not by the health system. Yeah. So who's detaining who? Wow. So only, they don't like to publish the stats all the time. It's several thousand people, but there's a lot more that are inside mental health institutions that don't realise they have a right to vote yeah. or are not allowed out by themselves and there's nobody to take them to vote and they have no means of getting a short notice proxy vote mm. or something like that. Some countries allow 16 year olds to vote. So if you live in Scotland and you were voting for Scottish Parliament, you can vote at the age of 16. Wales is about to do the same. Westminster, you have to be 18. So you've got a disparity within the UK of the voting age. You can still join the army at the age of 16. You can get married with your parents' permission at the age of 16, but you can't actually vote. So you've got a group there that's been disenfranchised as well, where in other places they could vote, but here you have to wait a little bit longer. If you're an EU national, you can only vote in your local elections, but you can't vote in Westminster elections. Okay. But in other European countries... If you're living there and working there, you can vote there. 
for their in their national elections because you're paying tax there. It's seen as you've got the right to vote. So again, that's another roughly three and a half million people in the UK that have just been disenfranchised that way. So they pay their taxes here, they live here, but they're not allowed to vote on the elections that matter to them. Mm. Then you've got people that have come in from other countries. So you've got the Commonwealth countries, and I mean, Ireland, we have a special agreement with that um, Irish nationals automatically have full rights to vote here. Yeah. When they come over, and that's a long standing agreement. Okay. We don't have the same with the French, though, although France is closer. Um, but also, you've got this problem that certain countries, if you were born there, and emigrate into England, you can vote. But other countries, if you are born there and you emigrate into England, you can't vote. So if you were born as a Chinese national, Japanese national, Filipino national, you can buy your citizenship here, but you can't vote. Whereas if you were an American national, Canadian national, South African national, new emigrate here, you can vote. And what does that depend on then? Depends on your former Commonwealth status, okay. largely. But yeah. when you look at the disparity across the UK, you just the sheer number of people that have been propping up our NHS and doing essential work and things like that, that are, say, Filipino nationals. Yeah, no, totally, totally. <laughs> They've got no voting rights. Wow. Mm. So by the time you then get down the road and you see there's a bit in the manifesto about, and now we're looking at ID, yeah. well, disproportionately, certain groups have already been disenfranchised all the way down. So you already have some constituencies that have populations of up to 140,000, but you only actually have about 60,000 of that population is registered to vote or is able to vote because the rest have been disenfranchised in one way or another. Either they're not old enough to vote or they're in prison or they're from countries that don't give them the eligibility to vote. Yeah. So when you're looking at some of the London constituencies in particular, half of the population roughly is not eligible to vote. When you then get yeah. to the stage of bringing in ID, then you start taking off the next groups of people that have come in from Commonwealth countries that can vote at the moment. So disproportionately, you're really going to affect your um, Black and Caribbean nationals that are born here, your Bangladeshi nationals, and so forth that are allowed to vote, but they're on the poorest tier socially. So they're least, and they tend to live in inner cities. So they're least likely to have a driving license, least likely to have passports. There are no real other photo ID available. And the government stats already show that those are the set groups that are going to be most affected alongside trans individuals who might not have photo ID. Yeah. And there's some other groups as well. So you're already looking at disenfranchised and suppressed groups, minority groups, that you're picking off 
government, the voting system, once you, if you do have the right to vote, so you've jumped through all the hurdles and by luck of birth, you've got the right to vote, is rigged anyway because it's first past the post. So yeah. it's not very fair. I mean, we quite frequently elect, if you like, a minority government when you look at the proportion of people that did vote for them out of the whole country. So only about 33% of the people that voted actually voted Conservative. Sorry, about 33% of the people eligible to vote voted Conservative. Yeah, yeah. You've got a percentage of people that choose not to vote. So So I just looked it up. The last election, about 35% did not vote. Yeah, but they were eligible to. Yeah, yeah. So you have no way of knowing which way they... They could have chosen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, what they didn't do was vote Conservative. That's what we do know. Yeah. They also did. I I remember that discussion around the time of Thatcher that people would say, but she only only actually got a mandate of about 30 to 40% of the the voting population, let alone the nation. Yeah. 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 And it's the same. It hasn't changed. And then when you look at the Brexit vote, it was about 17% one way, 18% the other way, and about 17%. It was a pretty even split yeah, between yeah. those that didn't vote, those that voted one way and those that voted the other way. It was almost a three-way split. I was like, wow. Um, yeah, that's what man's really. That's what man's. And you get the same at national elections, but also because of the way that the population has been carved up, you can almost determine which way people will vote because the government is in effect by disenfranchising set groups they're choosing the voter yeah yeah they're kind of laying down criteria so it's a bit like saying i've got a party it's open for everybody however you have to have this hair color and wear this kind of an outfit and look like this and then going, but it's fair because I said it's open to everybody. <laughs> That's a good word for it. It's a really Which good word for it. It's doing with the voter. They're yeah. saying that everybody's entitled to vote, but we're not. You're only entitled if you meet set criteria. Yeah. And then they're making it harder by doing things like, we all know that every time there's a national election a huge number of students manage to mess up voting and it's yeah. not usually because they're politically not interested it's because one way or another they weren't registered at the correct address and things like that or something went wrong uh... there are ways that it could be made a lot easier if that vote percentage was really wanted but it would have to be wanted exactly yeah and it's not yeah. in the government in the current government's favour to get that vote percentage. That is a young voter base. Right. That are not historically going to vote for that party. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they're not going to chase that voter base and make it easier for them to vote. However, it's really easy to get a postal vote, which very much favours older voters. Or people uh-huh. who've moved to somewhere like Spain and still want to have their vote. Exactly. Yeah, interesting. 
So you're enabling one group and actively disenfranchising the other. Yeah. And whether you're doing disenfranchising it legally by putting yeah. a legal barrier yeah. in the way or just making it really hard. Yeah. Wow. Wow. There are all these things that we're doing. So the other groups that are disaffected are people like the homeless population. Um, yeah. You can register to vote if you don't have an address, but not a lot of homeless people do. No, I work with the homeless, and you're right, they wouldn't dream of registering, really. Yeah. I mean, it's just not, it's the day-to-day stuff that is so important, they wouldn't, it would escape there. You know, it's funny how with other groups, it's almost done for them, but with the homeless, it's left to them to do it. And they're not really in a position to, you know, that's not their priority of what's going on in their lives. No, it's <clears> likewise people that are in hospital at the time. It's quite often not their priority. Yeah, the same, yeah. Um, and there are there's all these groups that it's just not their priority at the time. And yet other nations quite often allow people to vote either over a set period of time that's not just on one day between set hours. It can be between two or three days. So it's a set time period. Or there are different means of voting. And we're quite narrow in the ways that we allow people to vote as well. Mm. I mean, some of the ways that we could kind of highlight that um, would be displayed through the constituencies and how the constituencies have changed over time and depending on who's been in in government um, the constituencies reflect or can reflect the the general nature the direction of which the countries move yeah I mean we're just having Um, a boundary review and I live in the constituency of Wellingborough and it's quite interesting because the constituency I live in is about to become a, a U shape and it's like well, why does it need a little hole in the middle <laughs> oh, because that the next MP up and ensures that they also yeah. manage to retain them because the lead here is so high it's such a safe seat that they can afford to move some to the next constituency. Right. Wow. So you often end up with small communities split in two, and it doesn't seem logical to the people living there. Like here, where half that it's quite a large village. Um, half of the village is in one constituency, and half of it's in another constituency. But the other constituency that it's in. Yeah. yeah. So like in the constituency of Daventry, and yet Wellingborough is three miles down the road, and Daventry is like a place half of them have never been to. Yeah, no, totally. Um, but how, how do complications come up in that? Because if you've got like your sort of local area. So for example, um, let's pick Kentish Town, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, you've got half of Kentish Town in one constituency and then half in, in the other. How yeah. how does that work in terms of Kentish Town itself? I suppose the question is, does it work? Do people actually know what constituency they're in? who their MP actually is. 
because my my thinking is that if you have um, different counselors <laughs> covering the same area, you can't really address the needs of that area because of how the constituencies marked up around it. Yeah. And quite often the councillors aren't in line with the constituencies and it becomes, it's not a straight overlay map that says, well, we've still got county councils in some areas mm-hmm. or like London council. It doesn't overlay with the constituencies properly. So Northamptonshire has just gone under two separate unitary councils, but we've got seven MPs. And it's, it doesn't overlay properly. So you can be under different councillors depending on where you live, even within the same like village and things like that. Not only can you be, be under different constituencies, but you can fall under different local areas as well. Which just mean that services are completely out of sync, depending on who your MP is, who your councillor is. We've just got a very convoluted system. Right. I think that's what makes it so difficult, is it's an almost impenetrable system because at the top of it is money. It's one of the most expensive countries to run for parliament in. I mean, there was a piece released um, a couple of years ago titled The Most Expensive Job Interview, and it related to if you go for an interview to become what's known as a PPC, which is a prospective parliamentary candidate. And your local party, whether that's Labour or Lib Dems or Conservatives, says, yes, you can be our parliamentary candidate for this constituency. Next election's meant to be in four years' time. You're not getting paid. But depending on which party you're standing for, it can cost you up to £64,000. This was when it was written. You run for a parliamentary candidate and yet you're unlikely to win. So it was dubbed the most expensive job interview in the world because if you got it, it was going to cost you a lot of money. Yeah. And it actually, you're from one of the minority parties because you've effect, in effect got to work so much harder to try and get that vote. And the odds mm. of you winning it are so much less. Yeah. So the cost of being a Green or a Lib Dem parliamentary candidate is really disproportionately high because you're either having to move house into one of the areas that you stand a good chance of winning. So you've got the additional cost of moving into, in effect, a university city, which has higher house pricing. But then you've got the cost of running that job. You've got to work the constituency for those four years learn it, understand it, get to know the people, basically do the job and then stand for election and be unlikely to win it. So cost is a real barrier and so is access because we complain about not having as many, say, women in Parliament or as many younger people in Parliament or as many people from ethnic minorities in parliament, it's quite literally to do with money and time. Yeah, yeah. These are people that don't have the money and the 
paint, say four years of their life, roughly 20 hours a week, if they're doing it in a half-hearted kind of a way, you can spend a lot more trying to win a seat that they might not win. Yeah. Whereas if you're in a safe seat, your party's going to back you because the vote says you're going to win. So yes, you'll still have him to put the money in, but you're going to get it back. Which is also why disproportionately we have people from set backgrounds, so they come from wealth that go into Parliament because you well, need the money the, to run in the first that place. That was the very essence of why, in the beginning, it was in theory changed. The whole point was yes. to stop that privilege from happening. Exactly. Wow, but it's even full... more entrenched now than it was yeah, then. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Well, what a full circle. It's you look at the kind of money that's in the House of Commons. I mean, it's I think roughly there's about six percent of people that go through private schooling in England and Wales, obviously not Scotland, for they don't have private schools, so England and Wales. It's roughly six percent. Yet the House of House of Commons you're looking at over 60%. So 10 is the national average. Less than 1% of the population of this country will ever go to an Oxbridge University. Yeah. Yet when you look at the House of Commons, it's roughly half of them have been through Oxbridge. That's ridiculous. Wow. Roughly 18% of the population at any given time have a disability in the UK. Currently, there are four or five MPs with a disclosed disability out of 650. Um, oh roughly half of the population of female, 34% of the House of Commons. You know, in all ways, you're looking at it being quite disproportionate. You're looking at ethnic minorities. It's, it's getting better visibly but it's still way below what it should be. Yeah. And it's different minorities. It's not the... So certain ethnic minorities are... It's not overrepresented because there aren't any ethnic minorities that are overrepresented in the House of Commons, but there are still some that have yet to get there. Yeah, 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 yeah. There has never been a Member of Parliament that is from a Romani background or a traveller background. There are really? there is one that said that his grandmother may have been. It's a bit of an odd point that he made. Um, but may have been may Romani. Have yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's never. not um, never. I mean Romani communities have only been here five hundred just over five hundred exactly. Years. exactly. You know, Slightly longer than the Houses of Parliament, but no, never. That's mad. One. Um, we've had an MEP that has been, but not an elected person. Yeah. And disparities, that they may sound silly, but it means that when it comes to people representing and knowing the issues that might be faced by, say, somebody with a disability, or somebody from that back from whatever background it is if there's nobody there that has that experience it's unlikely to even be seen as a problem I, I, so now now we're talking about awareness 
yeah quite literally if you're not around people from a different uh background whether that be cultural religious social economic um whatever it might be like you may not be as freed up on what we actually need um yeah i i i I observe some of the uh, the mayoral election, and I kind of want to just point out one candidate, one particular candidate, um, who was campaigning, and he was he was <clears throat> going for the Sadiqs, the Sean Baileys, all of the big characters, government in general, um, and he mentioned within that that they were effectively ostracizing him from the process. Um, they, what was said was that due to COVID, that there was to be no campaigning. Um, now, obviously being an independent, that very much limits your your access to people. Um, however, what we do is um, circumstances where you know, independent. So I think in terms of the independent, I, I think that recently, I think we kind of, as we began to come out of the the sort of more fuller restrictions um, and we began to, people have been, MPs have been able to get out and actually uh, campaign. Um, the campaign trail has began. And within all of the, the, the content that um, Young Drilly, um, had, had put out there, he'd mentioned that it costs something like £10,000 to kind of what, like register to, to, for yep. the campaign to become exactly. a mayor. And then, but then you have to achieve a set percent. I don't know what the percentage is for the London mayor, but that's the deposit that you're putting down. Whenever you stand, you put down a deposit unless it's for a town council or unless it's for a lower council you're putting down a deposit and you have to achieve a set percentage of the vote to get that deposit back. Mm-hmm. You only get the deposit back if you get over a set percentage of the vote. And it doesn't feel very democratic when you're called into an office and you're literally handing over a wedge of £20 notes to say, can I stand for election? Because they usually specify it's in twenty pound notes, <laughs> and you're like, "This is the most oh, bizarre wow. um, part of democracy that I have ever known." Rather than it just being a bank transfer, I don't agree with having to pay to stand anyway. I think that that's wrong. It's a barrier, um, but it really doesn't feel very democratic to be handing over a physical wedge of cash because you're talking a few thousand each time but it also means that the smaller parties you're asking people will say well if you stood in every constituency for Westminster for example you might get more votes well first the party has to raise the deposits for somebody to stand mm. and it's a considerable amount so, what? small amount of money here. You're talking 
a few cells at a time. So every time an MP stands, there's an amount of money that has to be paid in order yeah. for them to stand. Yeah, a deposit. And if you don't get enough votes, you don't get your deposit back. Where does that go? Basically to local government authorities. It's to help with the cost of elections, they say. But in the grand right. scheme of things, those deposits are almost nothing. But for the people standing, they're everything. Mm. You know, a couple of thousand pounds to stand might be a drop in the ocean for um, the party that's in government. But for the smaller parties, it's a lot of money to front. Mm. And then, and then you, you've got the cost of the election material. Yeah, then you've got the actual yeah. cost of the election material and all of that lot. Elections are very, very expensive. And yet, as a country, we set the limits really, really high on what can be spent. Other countries, not America, but some other countries set very low limits on what can be spent. And they, they make it so that everybody's almost given that amount. If you can draw in a set percentage of the vote, you know, if there is a, a reason for you to stand, so you're saying that, yes, a set percentage of the voter will vote for me, then you get given a pot of money to campaign with and everybody gets the same pot of money. So it's a lot fairer. Mm-hmm. Whereas we don't have that. So the larger parties, the pots of money that they're playing with can be literally hundreds of times larger than the smaller parties. Wow. So then you get people going, well, we didn't hear much from you. And it's like, well... You can't. All of this is a cost. And Mm. even the publicity that you get on the airways is determined by how, how, what percentage of the vote you got at the previous election. So it's all weighted in favour of the government every single time. Which helps Mm. keep the same party elected. And that's why we have stints in this country where one party will stay elected for a few terms because it's literally weighted in their favour. Right. See, now we're, we're really uncovering some of these electoral myths. Um, these <laughs> and dare I even say it, that it, it, it does sound like one big conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, this is why I think that it is, in fact, an elected dictatorship, because mm. we don't really have a democracy. We are not equal by any means. And even if you are elected, you're still not equal. Because if you're the elected and you're the opposition... Or worse, you're an independent. Parliament has hardly any say anymore. Wow. So it's really the government that has say. <sighs> wow. Okay, so if we were to form a group or there was a group and they wanted to challenge some new legislation that had been brought up um, or a change to the legis- legislation, um, 
they like how would they do that because the government already has its own agenda they are the the boss of the house and parliament who are supposed to be representing the the people have very little say and that's regardless of their perspective whether it's uh the left or the right or the center in in government um that's and then when you consider more and more is populism so if there is an appetite for change and the government believes it's in their favor to change it then change will happen so it seems to be very much a and i think this really does hark back to margaret thatcher as the most recent prime minister as the most recent of the prime ministers that it started with she introduced poll tax it was very very unpopular the mm-hmm. only way that her government were going to stay in was to remove it so therefore the legislation got changed so it seems to come down to whether the government seemed to think that they can hold on to power if they change it or if they don't change it on whether it gets changed. See, that's interesting for me because I think <clears throat> if if government, okay, for example, they brought in this, this whole uh, coronavirus bill. Now, the mm-hmm. fact that they even brought in some of these measures just shows me that no they're not people that i'd want to vote for that, i know but the point is where are they going if they, if they rescinded that it still doesn't change my opinion <laughs> it's like do you, you try to gonna, do do you think they're going to take back as much as they put in say that again do you think they're going to take back as much as they do you think they're going to give back as much as they took away See now, this, this is what's interesting because this is a, a new law. So this is mm-hmm. the minus five hundred year for everything that exists now, um, or the minus three hundred year for everything that exists now. And so this is the this is now the foundation. This is going to become more and more complex as mm-hmm. time goes on. We yep. already had issues with um, like the police, kind of not really understanding how these laws are supposed to work ending up fining people ending up um you know arresting people detaining people we've had um numerous examples of that have to take place throughout the country um yeah yeah like right to protest and stuff like that mm-hmm mm-hmm now you know, the, the that was the taken away right yeah because it was seen for public health purposes that it was really not a good idea to have these large gatherings a lot of people agreed under that um under that basis that temporary mm-hmm. suspension based on trying to contain a virus was at that point perhaps sensible I'm not saying i agree or disagree just that that was the the basis given was to contain a virus but now we've seen the creep of that that it's no longer about containing a virus now they just want no protests so we're seeing the the reasoning taken away and now it's because it's a public nuisance or you know it's unruly and you're like yeah that is the aim of a protest 
<laughs> the whole aim is to be a bit disruptive. Mm-hmm. But I don't think we would have been able to get to where we are today had you not had that coronavirus act in the middle that had initially removed the right to protest. You wouldn't be able to just jump straight in with a, a policing bill that had no real right to protest. It would have been too big a jump. Right, so there was like already a law in place. Yeah, they've crept from the Coronavirus Act. They've crept. So there's things in the Coronavirus Act that we're now seeing being put into other pieces of legislation. Right. So you've got this creep going on. Yeah. Wow. And you've got other things that are like hidden that um, like the Human Rights Bill that was also in the Conservative Manifesto they mention it in there so you can see this creep happening people have been today discussing um, about um, the rail's going to get a bit of a shake up and stuff like that now the railway yeah now yeah, that's been a key they, part they, of the manifesto. Nationalising them, aren't they? Well, kind of. Um, the tracks and stuff are already, in effect, nationalised. Right. They're not really owned by the rail companies. It's more, they're already in effect nationalised. Um, yeah. It's the rolling stock that's owned by the companies. But now they're incentivising punctuality and things like that, which will be, a, I'd imagine, quite a popular um, basis to run on. But something's going to give. And what's likely to give is the number of trains and the number of stops they make on the key routes. So it might take longer to get to where you're trying to go to if they're having to make more stops to make up the passenger numbers to compensate for running on time and things like that. But also, people have been crying out for years for the season tickets to be made more equal because you get a load of part-time workers or you get people that travel so many times per month weren't eligible to get the season tickets or the highly discounted weekly tickets which also have tax benefits because you you pay for them prior to you pay for them at the top end of your salary so they get taken off first before tax right um which is kind of, it's very beneficial. So from where I live, the cost of a season ticket by train is roughly £6,000 a year in and out of London. Wow. Only works out beneficial if you're travelling four days a week or more. You can't buy a part-time season ticket. So although it would make logical sense to have one for people that travel two or three days a week and make it half the price because you're travelling half the time. Yeah. Or maybe you're travelling on a a week, one of the days is a weekend day so you don't need a Monday to Friday ticket this has never been available which means that wow. people that work part time that commute part time which are mainly women very disproportionately women or people that work flexi hours which are disproportionately younger people so they might do a couple of days in a city and then a couple of days working from home were always discriminated against on these ticket pricing 
It was always in the favour of the people that worked your standard nine to five, commuting on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, weekend at home. It was always in their favour and they got the full benefits. But now you've had coronavirus and that group has suddenly been made to work from home quite often. I think what you're seeing happen now is the only way they're going to go back is if they get the same perks that they used to but they don't want to be travelling in and out every day. So now there's a need for this part-time ticket because now it's affecting the group with the power that have money that vote for that group, that vote for that party. And it's not like it's never been raised before. It's always been known that it favours some people. Over others, yeah. But it works. But... Ah. It favoured the people that voted the right way. And the people that uh, weren't voting that way were not favoured. <laughs> mm. See, that, that's that's now interesting because you, you touched on um, the ticket pricing structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know from my own experience with travelling back and forth between back home in Birmingham um, and London, there was something like five different tickets that I can get on exactly. any given day. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I just you want the return to. ticket. Exactly. <laughs> you, know? you have to become, it's like compare the market for train tickets, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know where to look or you can, you know, get one at the right price. Mm. It's become a very stupid system. Yet they've known this all along. So now for them to say we're going to... It's it's only because it's now in their favour to do so. So they're just trying to appease the group that is going to keep them, it's probably a very cynical way of the group. Mm. Now, this is something that kind of resonates because when we talk about appeasing people, there was an example that Mark gave. I think it was in the, the prior episode that you were with with us. Um, and he talked about this example of this post on Facebook where this gentleman had commented that he was actually really pleased with the Tory party because the, the local area now had nine uh, food banks. And yeah. before that, they didn't have any. And it's it's kind of like, wait, hold on, you, you've got your priorities a bit mixed up here. Yeah, like you shouldn't that, be that celebrating food banks. Yeah. Um, although, you know, they may very well be needed. They've been needed because of the, the circumstances under which government is operating with. Yes. Um, which has kept you in a position where you've been desperate for these services. Now that you have them, you're happy now we, we've made you happy, we've made you feel complete, and now you're more likely to vote for us. That's really, really, I don't know, that, that, I, I, I it's, it's, it's a psychological psychologically, mind. Yeah. It's, um, it's a situation that should never happen. We have our rates of poverty here. I know this whole argument about it's not abject poverty in the UK, it's based on the median income and the requirement to live and things like that. It's still poverty. 
um, the rates here are really high. I mean, you've got some constituencies where the rates of child poverty are nearly half of the children are living in poverty. Mm. Those children have never, it's nothing that they could have ever done. It's a symptom that they have been born into, that they're having to suffer the consequences of. And it's going to affect them for the rest of their lives. But we're one of the richest countries on the planet. And yet we have a problem with homelessness and we have a problem with poverty. And then we find out that going through coronavirus, the wealthiest people in this country have made huge amounts of money. The disparity is just growing. But that again comes back down to the government choosing the voter. So the voter then chooses the government. It's a, a little cycle of disenfranchisement and voting. Mm. Mm. See, now, I wanted to kind of envelope this, this, um, this point about the voting system. Um, I kind of touched on the constituencies and how they've been adapted to cater towards, you know, a party's agenda um, for that particular area, region, constituency. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, the other point that I wanted to kind of touch on was surrounding uh, the campaign for proportional representation, which was something that was very much banded about when uh, Tony Blair came in. I remember there was a lot of talk about ER, ER, proportional representation. Um, there was, but they got the the one that was allowed was the most convoluted form of it ever that people went to the vote on, which was the alternative vote, AV. And I don't think most people understood it, so therefore it wasn't voted through. But just because people didn't want AV, the alternative vote, doesn't mean that they didn't want proportional representation, which is how it's been presented. It's been presented as you were given a choice. You were asked if you wanted proportional representation. No, we were asked if we wanted AV. And we said no. That doesn't mean we want first past the post. Which is how it's been interpreted. And yet, depending on where you're voting here, if you're voting in Scotland, you're used to single transferable vote. If you've voted in any of the mayoral elections, you're used to a form of um, representative, um, proportional representation. Right. Yet, you have to use first past the post. So we have a mixed up voting system anyway, depending on what level you're voting at. Right. Like the EU elections used to use a form of single transferable vote, uh, STV, where you'd pick a number of people. So it'd say, right, there's five, for example, you in your region and it says, okay, there are five MEPs elected from this region. Pick your five number them who's your first choice is your second choice is your third fourth and fifth yeah very similar to 
how you do it in London. It's not difficult and it gets you a far fairer system. But in order to do that, we'd have to completely change the boundaries. It wouldn't work with the, I don't feel that it'd work with the smaller constituencies that we have at the moment. You'd probably have to go more to a county level and be saying you're picking so many people per county or so many people per area of a city. And you would end up with far more people coming through from the smaller part. There are places that you can go online that show you the difference of what the House of Commons would look like if it was under proportional representation based on the same votes being cast compared to what it looks like on first past the post. And you'll see that under proportional representation, you'd have a lot more of the opposition parties taking seats. And you wouldn't get, and also like the um, the number of people that have to vote to get in one MP from a party is very different for, say, the Green Party than it was for the Conservatives. The number of people that voted Green and they won one MP was quite a few. You know, you're talking in the millions. Yet. The number of people that vote to elect one Conservative MP is nowhere near as much. You're talking maybe 20,000 in some cases to get a Conservative MP in. So there's a huge disproportionality as well in the number of votes cast to get a representative from a party because of how the votes are spread. It's a really convoluted system. On purpose. Yeah. yeah. It's not by accident. It's by design. Mm. And it makes it very difficult for people coming in and trying to stand. It's very convoluted. And there's all kinds of legislation around it as well. Mm-hmm. To make it even more difficult and create its own little system within a system which basically just keeps it almost as a two-party state. Yet far more countries across almost the world now are used to um, share, uh, power-sharing governments mm-hmm. where you have a major and a minor party and they share power. That's the norm in some countries, yet we very rarely have it here. Is that like the coalition? Yeah. Right. Our system's just not geared up for it. We're built up for what's known as a majoritarian government, so a winner-takes-all approach. But they only need to win marginally, and they get all of the power. So it's power hoarding is the basis of the Westminster model, rather than power sharing. Mm. Now, something that kind of comes to mind is on the back of that um, the results for Brexit Um, there was it was a it was something like was it 52 48 or 51 49 something like that it's like really really close of the people that voted that's the point it was of the people that voted because roughly a third didn't vote 
Right. Look so then been. when I look at the, the the graphics that were floating around, like you can see London was red and then pretty yep. much the rest of England was blue. Um, no, not, it's quite interesting when you suddenly, as you say, you look at London, yep, London voted, sorry, <coughs> London voted to remain. Most of the university cities were marginally remain as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether that's down to um, income, they tend to be richer. They were voting to remain younger. You get a huge student population in these places. Um, knowledge levels mm-hmm. or the type of work. Quite often they will remain as well. The northern cities voted overwhelmingly leave. And the Tory heartlands voted overwhelmingly to leave. Mm. But a referendum result that was that close there is a big argument to say that there was really no mandate mm-hmm. because it was too close to call most countries that have forever that have currently specify before you go into the vote that it's got to be more than a set percentage that vote this way for it to be legally binding Right. Like it has to be more than, say, 60%. And then we've been given a clear mandate or given a clear, this is the will of the country. But we didn't yeah. do that. We we voted and then we set the rules afterwards. So I think no matter which way the vote had gone, the rules would have been set afterwards. Wow. We didn't do it in advance. And we were also fed a load of um, a load of things that were perhaps not as true as they could have been. Mm-hmm. But we're quite politically disengaged in this country, which is shown by our voter turnouts on elections anyway. We're not very politically engaged in the first place. We don't teach politics at school generally, not until yeah. you get to A-levels and things like that. Um so we're not the most politically engaged country anyway. And we tend to talk bad politics rather than explaining what politics really is. Yeah. And we also think of politics as being something that happens maybe in Westminster rather than the stuff that happens in the everyday life and how it governs that. So we tend to think of like narrow end politics rather than the big broad end, like the reason why we haven't got the youth centres anymore is actually because of a policy that went through. Mm-hmm. That's political. The reason why we've got knife crimes is a political issue. The reason we have poverty is a political issue. The reason why we have or we need free school meals is a political issue. But people don't think of these things as politics. There's kind of a disconnect there between, okay, free school meals, that is political, or knife crime, that is political. That connection is not portrayed as such all the time. Mm. Mm. And I think that's kind of been a a theme of this government. They've tended to come across as 
very hands off. A lot of well, the time. it's a um, a key part of conservatism is a small government, whereas a key part of socialism is a large state, so a large government. So, conservatism at its core believes that the government is as small as required. They interfere with your private life if it has to. So, um, they call it negative freedom, but basically it's the idea that you're supposedly free to do whatever you like, as long as you don't cross the line. And they determine where that line is. Whereas socialism is almost the opposite, and they believe in a far larger role of the state. And they believe that the state's role is to give you freedom. So whereas one believes it's to protect your freedom, the other believes that they enable the freedom in the first place. So there's this kind of a dichotomy that goes on. So where we've had over a decade of a conservative government, we've seen the role of the state in some areas getting smaller with the individual being blamed for well you're not trying hard enough or it's an individual issue or it's that town that's a problem rather than the state taking ownership and saying yeah actually we need to fix that you know that was our fault unemployment levels rising is a fault of the state or crime rising is a fault of the state Instead, they will go, well, it's the the fault of that group of people causing the crime or the fault of that group of people that are largely unemployed. Yeah, and they'll draft up all of these statistics and figures and graphs and illustrate how the groups break down. And then the media kind of portrays this idea of um, particular groups being the cause of Yes. So, for example, right now um, we have the Indian variant, they call it, of the coronavirus. Um, (laughs) A few weeks back, Boris had made a deal with India to send a thousand ventilators. Um, Myself and Mark actually did an episode on this. And (laughs) you're, you're familiar with cryptocurrency, right? Yep. Yeah. So, Uh, we worked out that Boris had sent the equivalent of 0.0001 Satoshis. Right. In in terms of how, how many ventilators they sent, because it was something like, yeah, like it's, it's like minus, it's a minus percentage. (laughs) You know, it's, it's, it's from a, for a population of over a billion people. A mm-hmm. thousand ventilators when they're having something like two to three hundred cases is is barely barely scratching the surface. Um, but then, what has since unravelled is that there are large numbers of Indians coming over to the UK during the coronavirus, and they and now it's here. It's actually in my area, apparently. Yep. So well, I know that it's. Um, I live quite close to Bedford. And if you look on a little map, Bedford's not doing so great. <laughs> but it will be blamed on the communities living in Bedford. Mm-hmm. 
and I know that likewise for you, it'll be blamed on the communities living there. And it's like, well, yeah. Actually, how about? Yes, maybe it's going through those communities, but it could, it's probably not their fault. It's probably more down to some of their working conditions mm-hmm. um, and other social constructs. Mm-hmm. Not that these are people flying in and out of countries and purposely catching COVID and bringing it over. Mm-hmm. Those are not going to be the people at fault. And it's, um, you can use the same statistics and argue it from both sides. So, what you were on about earlier, you can get one, one side arguing that it's this group that are at fault. And you can get another type of government arguing that we've let that proportion of our population down, yet use the same statistics to highlight either side. And it's all in the wording. Do you blame the group or do you say that you've let that group down? Mm. One One side says that it's that group's fault, so you're not going to invest in them. And the other side says it's actually the state's fault, so we need yeah, to help them. about it yeah yeah um but it'll be the same stats that are used yeah wow um i have to say this has been a a very enlightening conversation um i know that we could probably talk for years <laughs> on this topic um but we'll come back to this at another time and and kind of expand on it um i'd like to say thank you very much for your time this this afternoon well thank you and um stay safe i will do Um, enjoy looking at the other side of politics and questioning why instead of looking at just what people are doing question the why I suppose why why is the government putting that policy through? Who does it help? And that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much, Susanna. Um, unfortunately, Mark dropped off. I'm not sure if his battery died or maybe his signal um, got cut off. But uh, thanks to Mark as well. That is all from us for today on this episode of Tea with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr with myself Jermaine and my guest Susanna and Mark thank you very much it's the Curious Anarchy podcast good morning, good afternoon good evening and good night